And she told them that he had said these things to her. Art is a world looking for life. And indeed, very often it's confused about what life is. At one point, the conversation is about whether some cells in a womb constitute life or not. At another point, it's whether some cells on a distant planet constitute life or not. Or it's whether we have the right to life, or indeed to end our life, or is it the quality of our life that means that we have life or not. Life is perhaps being able to do exactly what you want to do and exactly when you want to do it. Maybe life as a digital native. Life comes when you are connected and plugged into the conversation. Or indeed it's not, it's when you are unplugged and able to look into somebody's eyes or to spend time outside in the outdoors and forget about the online world. Maybe life is the weekend. Life is when you can do away with work and exams and school and assignments and whatever it might be. Or, or life is having the money so that you don't have to stress anymore. Life is having the spouse or the family that we dreamed of. Or the house, or the clothes, or the body, or any number of things. The way that we are, the way that we've been brought up, the culture that we're a part of, will shape our own personal definitions of life. I wonder if you had a totally blank sheet of paper and could write on it, what would your definition of life be? And yet this morning of all mornings is a chance for us to consider, to reconsider the definition of life that we are working from. Because you see, as John writes the gospel that we have in our hands this morning, it is all about life. Actually, Tom took the kids and us to it a moment ago. Have a, I mean, if you've got your Bible open, flick over to the next page. And you see at the end of John chapter 20, John the gospel writer tells us why he wrote his gospel. He has an agenda and he is very honest about it. He says, Jesus performed many other, John 20 and verse 30, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. Okay, but here we go. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And yet the life that he speaks of here, at first glance at least, it doesn't have so much to do with phones or clothes or money or jobs or rest or being able to do what I want to do and when I want to do it and have life on my terms. Now the life that John is speaking about as, a, as an eyewitness is the life with God that we were made for. It's what all these other things, I take it, are looking for but looking in the wrong place. A life that starts now and goes on through death. So let's have a look at chapter 20. And if you jump in at the beginning, verse 1, let's be honest, it doesn't feel much like life, does it, at verse 1? Do you remember where we are? At this point, everything has gone wrong. Jesus, the promised king, the one whom they gave it all up for, the one whom they left everything for, is dead. And his body is lying in a tomb of a man called Joseph Arimathea, who had left it there on the Friday. And the disciples had pinned their hopes on him. And they had followed him. And then they saw him hung on a cross on the Friday. 
And there's no doubt about that. It's not up for debate in one sense. They had seen it with their own eyes. John wrote this and he was there. He had seen Jesus flogged, mocked, nailed to a cross, died. And then chapter 19 ends... Verse 31, now it was the day of preparation. The next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus, they found he was already dead. They didn't break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony. His testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth. And he testifies that you also may believe. You see, at that point, it's pretty hopeless, isn't it? Because death is the end. Or at least death was the end. But you know, in just a few weeks' time, something extraordinary will happen if you work your way through the Bible, because the extraordinary thing will be Peter and the disciples will be found on the the steps of the temple in Jerusalem. And they are boldly proclaiming there that Jesus is God's king, that God's plan had worked, that there is hope, that there's true hope for everyone, for me and for you. And the question that we must ask is what's changed? Because at this point, end of John 19, it looks hopeless. How do we go from a place like this to a place like that? With men preaching and being prepared to die for what they've seen. How do we go? Well, it begins chapter 20, verse 1. Early, early on the first day of the week. Notice that it's a small point, but he doesn't say three days later. It's the first day of the week. It's a a new week. It's a week that will change forever. And it begins with a woman called Mary. And she is up early and she's getting on with the job at hand. She's embalming the body, anointing it with um, spices from Nicodemus. In fact, it's 35 kilos of spices, we're told elsewhere, which is an enormous amount. Interestingly, that is the amount used for royalty. Now, how she had planned to enter the tomb, we don't know. Maybe she hadn't got to that part of the plan yet. Maybe the grief was too much. Maybe she wasn't thinking straight. Maybe she would cross that bridge when she gets to it. Anyway, she leaves the house at the crack of dawn, first opportunity to go, and she arrives there and she finds the tomb open. But doesn't go in. She doesn't go in, but she seems to make up her mind straight away what's happened. And it's obvious, because she's not thinking of resurrection, though. She's thinking of the thieves. Because in verse 2, that's what she tells them. You see, so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. And we don't know where they have put him. And we don't know who they are at this point. At this point, maybe they are grave robbers who have come to steal the linen and the bodies and the um, the spices, which would be expensive. Maybe that is the they, or maybe the they are Roman soldiers or even the Jewish authorities seeking to guard against any claims that he's come back from the dead. If they can have the body, they can wheel it out and prove that he's not. And so Peter and John run. They run as fast as they can to the tomb. John wins. 
And John loves to mention that, doesn't he? He rubs it in a number of times to Peter's nose. And he arrives at the tomb first. This is the true Sunday morning park run. But he's cautious about going in. Is anyone there? He, he bends and he looks through the entrance. He sees the strips of linen, but he stays outside. And Peter, as Peter does, true to form, barges on in. He went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. And see, this initial evidence is strange, isn't it? Look around the room with me, with Peter. It's, it's organised. The strips of linen are lying there, both the ones that would have contained his body, but also the one for its head, his head lying in its place. It, as if someone who had been lying there buried doesn't have a need for burial linen anymore. And it's tidy. The fact that the linen and the spices are there doesn't that discount the grave robbers for you? It's not adding up, is it? Do you see the point John wants us to latch on to? This is a confusing scene. Something special is going on. If you were a grave robber wanting to make money in a short space of time, you don't tidy up after yourself and you don't leave the goods behind. And then John charges in. Um, verse 8. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first... <coughs> but also went inside and he saw and he believed. It's interesting, the word saw in these ten verses have a deliberate coherence to them. Every time the see word comes or saw comes, there is more clarity. The picture is more vivid, more solid. There's more to believe in, if you like. So you get it in verse 1. Mary saw the stone had been removed. Or verse 6, Peter sees the strips of linen. Or, or verse 8, John sees and believes. And you see, for him, for John, seeing is believing. He didn't yet get the fact that this shouldn't be a surprise. He didn't understand that the scriptures pointed to it and foretold it. But maybe we can put it like this. He believes not on the basis of understanding, but he believes on the basis of the evidence. And then they go back home. <coughs> Mary sticks around. And there's this encounter in the garden that she has. Verse 11 through to the end of the next section, verse 18. It's a beautiful case of, of tenderness and of mistaken identity. And you contrast that with the account of the two running men bragging about who gets there first and then one of them charging into the tomb and then heading off again in confusion. Mary sticks around. And first of all, she sees two angels, which is the Bible's way of saying for us, this is special. Actually, angels are really uncommon as you read through the Bible. This is a sort of neon flashing light. These are messengers from the Lord. Angels come and we are meant to take notice. This is important. We're meant to kind of prick our ears up or rub our eyes off. And it's a poignant, lovely encounter, isn't it? Jesus reveals himself to Mary. There's such kindness and compassion. Her eyes are opened and she hears his voice speaking her name. 
There's a tenderness, a kindness, a gentleness with Mary. She hears and she sees. But it's also striking because she thinks he's the gardener. Now that could simply be taken at face value. Maybe there was a garden near the tomb, which I'm sure there was. But you can't help wonder if it's more going on than that. John is wanting us to join the dots up because Adam, at the beginning of the Bible, is the one working in the Garden of Eden. The first creation that that falls and it's ruined by sin. Adam is the first gardener, if you like. And so as Jesus comes on the first day of the week of this new week, he is, if you like, the gardener of a new creation. Renewed and born through suffering. Dealing with sin. This second Adam, Jesus, will be the alternative to the first Adam. This second gardener overrules the first as we trust him. But maybe you say, so what? Maybe you're here just um, listening in, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you're not quite sure where you stand and this is all well and good, but so what? What does this mean for us? What relevance does it have at all? Why does John record this? Why does he think this is a story that will give us life? Life in his name. Well, I want to say that this is the most important day ever. Paul is very clear about that as he writes to a church in Corinth later on. He says, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we may as well just pack up and go home. We are wasting our time. There is no point in being a Christian. He says, you are still in your sins. You are not forgiven. Just go home. Go and enjoy the sun. Stop sitting here in a primary school gym. But of course, Paul says that Jesus did rise from the dead. Rise from the dead. I'd love to just point a few things out to you as we kind of work our way over the passage again. Did you notice the detail that we saw as it was read, or as we looked at it? Little eyewitness factor there. You saw who got there first, and you saw what they saw, and it's described in clear detail. You see that someone gets there first and somebody else barges in. It's not airbrushed. It's not tidied up. This is not an Instagram account. The disciples are remarkably unimpressive. They look a bit foolish. Indeed, if I can put it this way, even the fact that it's Mary who finds the empty tomb, then it's Mary who Jesus meets and speaks to in the garden, that's not how you would make it up, because in those times, the the testimony of a woman would not be valid in court. And yet, it's striking, here is the men who miss the evidence and head back home again. And it's Mary who gets it right. If you were fabricating a story for this era, this is not how you would do it. Sometimes the story goes, well, of course the disciples believed, but, you know, people don't rise from the dead, do they? It's more of a metaphorical thing going on here. So the argument sometimes goes, well, obviously Jesus was an amazing man, he was an amazing teacher, and so he he trained his disciples to 
to think in a particular way. He inspired religious thinking in them. He taught them to think in a different kind of way. And so as we say Jesus is alive, the story goes, well that simply means he's alive through the continuation of his teaching. He's alive through the rise of faith in the disciples' hearts. He's alive through the church being founded as a memorial to him. So they say metaphorically, Jesus is alive. Think of it as more of a poem to help you get through life when life is dark and it feels a bit hopeless. Something that's true for you. But it doesn't work, does it? John is describing what he saw. John is describing what changed his life forever. John is describing what ultimately he would be prepared to die for. It's not a metaphor, says John. It happened in time and space. It is real. And it's changed the world forever. I think I want to say, if you've not been persuaded of that, can I encourage you to talk to a Christian here whom you know, or come and chat to me afterwards over coffee and ask what convinced them about the resurrection. Yes, we're not naive and stupid. We do know this kind of thing doesn't happen very often. But John is convinced that it did happen, and it totally transformed his life. And I can say it transformed the lives of many in this room as well. Notice too that you don't have to believe it all to believe. You don't have to understand it all to believe. You don't have to get it all to believe. John believed on the basis of the evidence he had. There was still lots more to to work through and to grasp onto. But he believes on the basis of the evidence that he sees. And of course it's not just a question of, of believing facts. The, the, the moment that, that John is describing for us, as we've said, changes the world forever. There's a dead humanity, if you like, now reunited with the God who made us. It's the possibility of that. The source of life. There's a reconnection again. As Tom was teaching the kids, it's as if we're being piggybacked. He carries us. We are united to him. The Bible language is we are in him now. And so if it's not just a question of believing facts, then it changes our definition of life, doesn't it? Life not as the world defines it, but life as the Bible defines it, as God defines it. He is the author of life and he knows the true definition. And we run off with our little definitions and can't agree on anything. But this is the first day of forever. The first day of a new week, the first day of a new creation, the the start of a new creation with a new gardener. Because Jesus conquered death. Which means sin and death are defeated forever. Which means that now we can be in Christ and not simply in Adam. It means that death is no longer the end and that life is available. But friends, it means as well, whatever life is like for us at the moment, I know for some in this room it's pretty dark, This new day, on this first day of the week, this empty tomb means that we have a hope. It means that this life is not all there is. It means that there is life to come. Let me lead us in prayer.
Father, where we doubt, would you convince us afresh of the reality of the resurrection and might we see the implications for us? Father, we thank you for what we see of your character in the resurrection. We thank you that you are trustworthy. We thank you that you love your people in a costly way. We thank you for the hope that we have because Jesus was raised from the dead. We thank you for your graciousness and your kindness. And we pray that those truths would work their way through into the the reality and the normality of life. The darkness, the suffering, the, the frustrations and the stress, the complications of life. In it all, might we be those who rejoice. Because on the first day of the week, your son was raised again. Be at work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.